fundamentalist upbringing, piano and diapers, Apple Store computers. Today on The Pursuit, Audrey Assad. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journey to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guest is Audrey Assad. Audrey is an award-winning songwriter and musician. She's been named on Amazon's Best Christian Music List and iTunes Christian Breakthrough Album. And if you've ever heard her sing, then you know why she has received the accolades she has. As the daughter of a Syrian refugee, she was raised in a biracial home. And today she takes us through her journey from an oppressive fundamentalist church through starting her own label, Fortunate Fall Records. Oh, and she just released a new album called Eden, which you can listen to on Spotify or Apple Music. So, Audrey, thanks for joining me. Um, You and I both have lived in Scotch Plains. Uh, Yeah. How about that? It's kind of wild. And it's wild because I think we discovered this after being sat next to each other at a right. at a table at a conference and it's like yeah. what are the odds you know yes yeah um, and like your church that you grew up in which mm-hmm. we'll talk about i'm sure mm-hmm. uh was like four mm-hmm. four houses away yeah. <laughs> from where i lived <laughs> it's so wild oh what a small world so you spent your the bulk of your childhood there? i did i left when i was 18 so i grew up in scotch in that area yeah and so tell me about where you were born what it was like growing up there oh i love new jersey i was actually just talking about new jersey for quite some time with someone i met today <laughs> whose family is from cherry hill so south jersey yeah. And we were just discussing that, you know, New Jersey is kind of, in my opinion, one of America's best kept secrets because it's a wonderful place and it's got so many strong stereotypes culturally, Mm. some of which certainly come from real things. I mean, I'm not going to (laughs) lie. There are a lot of repressed alcoholic Catholics there. That's very true. (laughs) You know, the Jersey Shore section that was filmed is there and is like that. But aside from those two kind of true stereotypes, it's a just a lovely place and full of lovely people. It is like that, but it's not all like that. Exactly. And at the same time, you know, people are blunt and they sort of don't mince words, which I also miss living in the South, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah. So I loved growing up there and I grew up in a multicultural home. My dad is from Syria. My mom is from the South. And mm-hmm. so I don't have maybe the classic New Jersey story if there is one, because it's a pretty diverse place in some ways. But yeah. So maybe that is a classic New Jersey story. I grew up uh, <laughs> seeing a lot more brown people and black people than mm-hmm. I do where I live currently. Yeah. I really loved it. I mean, it really shaped me to grow mm-hmm. up there. So um, I'm not someone who, you know, ran away and never looked back, although I don't live there anymore. It's actually, and you didn't ask about this, but it's bringing up a memory, a lyric in a yeah. um, Paul Simon song called My Little Town, which he grew up in New York, but in okay. um, a small town in New York. And he uh, writes about being young and living there and twitching like the finger on the trigger of a gun, like waiting to get out. Wow. And in a way, I relate because it was such a small town. Mm-hmm. Um, I had big dreams, you know, but when I but I've always looked back fondly on it. I really love it there. I still visit all the time. So when you were growing up, like how how conscious were you of your sort of biracial identity? 
Well, on one hand, it was hard not to be conscious of it, mostly because my dad's whole immediate family was living there. My grandmother was there. Um, they had a lot of friends who were Arabs. I had, you know, cousins and like non-cousins who were also cousins, you know, uh, yeah. we went to a church that had a lot of Arabs in it. And so I, I definitely grew up knowing that I was an Arab and we ate the food and my mom learned the language and the food yeah. and the cooking. And so it was very present on the other hand, though. I would say that I was extremely white passing because of my skin color and because mm. I never leaned into it as an identity publicly, you know, outside my home. Yeah. It was like at home is where I'm half Arab and at school I'm white. Yeah. And I think that it would have been maybe different had I had darker skin, but my dad is very fair. I see. And um, so I. I really had two worlds yeah. growing up, school, work, and then home. And it was like two different lives in some ways. Yeah. So you had mentioned your Plymouth Brethren Church. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that church and how you grew up. Well, for those who have never heard of the Plymouth Brethren, I'll give a very short history lesson, which is that <laughs> in 1835 or thereabouts, there was a man named John Nelson Darby who was part of the Church of Ireland. He was a priest and he left the priesthood and started the Plymouth Brethren with, with a couple of other guys from around that area in Ireland. Okay. Um, they built the whole thing on the premise that the church of God needs no priesthood and no kind of overarching governing body. Yeah. And so it's a very anti-liturgical type of church low church in the sense that there are no, you know, there are no liturgies, there's no pastorate either. So the yeah. whole thing is the churches are, they're autonomous from each other, but they are, and this is the other hallmark of Plymouth Brethren, they are bound by the purity of the table. It's weird because as anti-liturgical and hierarchical as it was, <laughs> right. there was this kind of rigorous standard of moral purity that had to be met by every person who received communion there. Mm. Therefore, you had to go under observation by the elders to receive communion. And if you went to another church and took communion, you would be not in communion anymore with this body of wow. believers. And so it was like they kept keeping the church of uh, the table of the Lord untainted was what bound them all together, huh. which as you can imagine, over time. There would be disagreements between different assemblies, and then they would excommunicate each other. Oh, wow. Because one believed the other to be an error or, yeah. you know, so ideological or do a doctrinal error was a cause for dismissal from the table. And so there were all these splits and fissures, and it is the way I remember it. There's shunning and there's, you know, <laughs> banning people. And, um, you know, my experience there was mixed, like most people could probably uh -huh. say about their religious upbringing. I really loved the, and still love the memories of the singing because we were an acapella singing tradition. Oh. Um, I loved the sort of quietness of our meetings. And I miss that sometimes when I'm in these loud, bombastic environments that I sometimes <laughs> find myself in, which I also love, but I, I loved that. I really responded to it yeah. and found it kind of spiritually nourishing to be in yeah. a lot of silent periods as a group of people. Because if you've ever been in a group yeah. where there's a long period of silence, it can get very centering and, and beautiful, I think, um, yeah. which was definitely part of our way. Um, 
there are a lot of things about it that were very anything from hard to traumatizing because it was a very fundamentalist environment. And so especially the church I actually grew up in before we went to church in Scotch Plains, uh, it was a smaller place um, in the sort of more conservative quarters of Plymouth Brethren. And we were women had our we had our heads covered. We couldn't pray out loud in front of a male over the age of reason, essentially. So a very like women didn't read scripture in front of men or sing in front of men or I definitely internalized that very deeply from a young age. And Mm. we are very, very um, hierarchical, ironically, in that way. It was a very staunchly defended thing. So I grew up with a lot of ideas about womanhood that were very influenced by that and have had to do some untangling. And because of that structure, I think it did permit some abuses to go on as well because women were really not seen as equals. Mm. And so there were things that went on, you know, that were overlooked and not really addressed. And it was tough. Um, Yeah. And then mixed with the sort of banishing shunning type of stuff you know there's just a lot of emotional territory there that was pretty difficult yeah um i don't really miss it but i do remember parts of it with love for sure um Uh but it 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 was a unique place to be raised i'll say that much you strike me as a, a sort of profoundly spiritual person and i think someone in the sort of oppressive conservative fundamentalist upbringing, I think could very easily just reject the whole thing outright. Mm -hmm. But you've really seemed to boil down the basics of your spirituality. How are you able to navigate through all that? Well, I mean, to be perfectly frank, I did become a nihilist for two years. So <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> I I definitely have done that. I have rejected it all mm. uh, before. And I think I needed to because my whole foundation for faith was built on certain givens and principles that I needed to really root up. and. It took me time and it took me really being willing to reject everything. And I think it scared a lot of people in my life that I was willing to do that. How old were you during Um, that time? That was not that long ago. I probably was in that territory in 2017. Okay. 2016, 2017. Yeah. I had kind of a long, slow crisis that started in about 2013. 2013, where I, I can remember like the moment that it sort of, not that it began, because I think the questions had been there for a long time, but the moment I first allowed myself to ask a question of myself and of God and that in a real way where I was willing to find out that the answer wasn't what I was told, you know? Yeah. And it was so interesting because I, it was the first time that I really, I had always had questions about hell and had never really permitted myself to explore them because I believed that it was not only fundamental to faith as a Christian to believe in the hell that I was taught as a child, but also, and this is where I think I've changed the most, also it was crucial to my belonging to a community. I felt that if I changed or questioned or evolved on any of these issues that were so hard for me, that my belonging would be lost. Hmm. And, um, I had been so used to growing up in a place where ideological and doctrinal purity was absolutely part of what allowed you to belong to the group. 
because right. if you if you diverged in any way, you were excommunicated. Mm. The journey was not allowed. You couldn't be in process. Yeah. You had to land in the right place at all times, you know. And so the first time that I really allowed myself to question hell was when and it was in 2013, I was that was the beginning of this long, so slow crisis I had. Um, and then in 2017, probably, I was pretty sure nothing meant anything. Mm. And I really only left that behind, if I'm perfectly frank, not because I had something happen that proved to me otherwise, right. but because I just hated it. Yeah, This is depressing. It's bleak. I, I know and I can see that if I continue to think this way, my life is going to be terrible. And I, mm. I, not all nihilists have that experience, but I just, I knew that wasn't going to work for me. And so I'd made a choice eventually to become someone who, well, I just chose, I chose to follow what I felt in my heart, which is that, um, there is some benevolent force or person in this universe that is working things together yeah. or is at least if not working them together at the time, I remember thinking if, if not working things together for our good, at least for good, you know, there is a goodness like there yeah. is. And that was the beginning. I had to go, go to that basic of a place. There is goodness. Mm. There is meaning. There is truth. I really didn't know if I believed any of those things anymore yeah. when I became yeah. sort of in that nihilist sort of space. And so I did go all the way to rejecting or at least to being willing to reject everything. Uh -huh. um, and I don't think I would be where I am now if I hadn't gone all the way there, because part of what was causing my torment was that I wasn't letting myself ask to the depths of what I needed to ask. Yeah. Audrey, it's interesting to me because... You know, you mentioned 2013, 2017. Those are, I mean, those are fairly recent years. Yeah. And so that upbringing of sort of indoctrination and mm -hmm. strict adherence to dogma mm -hmm. stayed with you, mm -hmm. you know, even after leaving the Plymouth Brethren. Yes, it did. It that, did. That value really stuck with you. It definitely did. Well, it's, if you think about it, my earliest memories of God and community are built on that foundational understanding yeah. of what it means to belong and what it means to follow God. And I think I internalized it deeply, partially because I am a person who really cares about what's true. And I, I do really want, like, I, if something is real and God is real, I want to know about it. It's, it matters to me. Yeah. I'm not, for whatever reason, if it's temperament or I don't know. I'm just bent toward the spiritual and always have been. And, yeah. and I took it very seriously. And so, yeah, I became a Catholic in 2007, actually. Okay. But even then, I remember that what part of what really attracted me to Catholicism at the time, not all of it, but part of it was, well, it has dogmas. Yeah. And I thought, that's awesome. <laughs> there are people over the course of history who have already figured all this stuff out. Yeah. I don't have to figure it out because they already did it. Right. So God, you know, through the lens of my understanding as a young child really did need to be restructured because it wasn't just through my fundamentalist upbringing, but also through my OCD lens that I had kind of created God, you know, and, yeah. and imagined this God. Huh. And so there was a lot there for me to unpack. And as I unpacked it, I was able to kind of feel enough to return to a relatively peaceful spiritual place because I was yeah. aware of these things for the first time. So as you're going through this faith journey throughout your life, how did music 
play a part? Because you you said you grew up in a church that was a cappella. Mm-hmm. So how did how did instrumental music and and the development of that uh, really play into your faith journey? I mean, even though we were an a cappella tradition, music was certainly always a real part of my spiritual life because we sang a lot. Okay, I learned a lot of my kind of I think maybe melodic tendencies from that. We had a tradition that was really Anglican tunes with Plymouth Brethren lyrics because our founder was an Anglican or Church of Ireland priest. And so a lot of the tunes we used were these kind of high church Anglican tunes. And so a lot of my musical sensibilities do come from that. But I didn't start writing songs till I was 19 because, you know, I didn't believe that that would be permissible. And Mm. when I was 19 was right around the time that I started kind of church hopping for myself. And I was, I had landed at a very wild and liberal Baptist church <laughs> compared to where <laughs> I was raised. I thought the Baptists were so wild. Uh, I did because there was like bareheaded women and people raising their hands and drums. I was like, holy cow, you know, yeah. this is crazy. And I just thought it was really liberating for me, actually. And mm. as much as I've differed from the Baptists at this point, I just have so much love for what it meant for me then to move into that space. And yeah, so that church was where, you know, a guy that was pastoring the young adults group was like, Hey, I hear you play. Cause I, I grew up playing at home, just playing piano and okay. play a little acoustic and stuff. I heard that you play piano and like, would you like to lead worship for our new Bible study for like 18 to 30 year olds that we're doing? And I was like, what's leading worship? Cause I had never <sighs> really been around that. Uh, With the exception, I will say of a couple of times I was permitted to go, I'm sure you'll know where this is, to Millington Baptist Church, Oh yeah, Liquid, and then it became a church (laughs) called Liquid, which I think you're familiar with. Yeah, yeah. um, Because we have a shared friend who... That's right. Well, he and his wife Mm -hmm. were from my church in Scotch Plains originally, they were going to. Um, But anyway, so because they were starting to work over there, I was permitted to go. They were like my youth leaders. I was permitted to go to that. And so I kind of heard a little bit of worship leading there, but I didn't own any like yeah. crazy worship music really until I was in my late teens. So he showed me some passion CDs and I was like, what <laughs> oh, is gosh. this? You know, so I started learning those songs and um, then I started writing songs. And so it wasn't, yeah, until I was almost 20 years old that I really started writing or leading worship or anything like that. So what music did you grow up playing? Well, like musically on the piano. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, classical music. Okay. And I also, you know, what's weird is that I have to hand it to my parents. Like they were definitely the black sheep of our Plymouth Brethren church because (laughs) most Plymouth Brethren people didn't listen to secular music. Yeah. And my parents didn't generally, but they had these kind of exceptions. So like we could listen to Jewel and we could listen to Paul Simon and we could listen to like James Taylor and John Denver. Yeah. And we could listen to... Are you outing your parents right now? (laughs) No, they've definitely (laughs) all, they've left that all behind. But yeah, yeah, so they, there were... Some influences, Bruce Springsteen too, okay. just the Born in the USA record for some reason. <laughs> but I I grew up with some outside cultural influences sort of filtered in there. And so my mom would also let me go to like, like we had a couple books of like, um, it's just, so, it just sounds so funny, but like movie themes and TV themes, like movies that I would never be allowed to see, like Love Story. You know, yeah. I, I knew how to play that because we had the sheet music for the theme. And so I did play a lot of music growing up, including some kind of older pop songs. Did you know you were good? Yes. When did you know you were good? Well, I knew I was good at the piano 
pretty early. I started playing when I was two. Oh, wow. I, my mom, my dad, you know, my mom have sort of told me this story that like when they bought a piano, I was two years old and they were like, that's cool. You know, we have a piano now. And she says, you know, one day I just climbed up there in my diaper because I was still wearing diapers. And I just started learning songs and picking out tunes that she could recognize like really quickly without her help. And she was like, oh, this is, you know, she's musical. So it's not even like you began playing the piano, like meaning started lessons. You like literally climbed up to the piano at two. And just figured it out. And it was definitely and still is like almost as easy as breathing for me to play without thinking. Wow. Very flow state thing for me. And so I knew pretty early that I was good at that because, well, partially because just the way people reacted to it, you know, I would go to a Bible conference and they would be like, we need a pianist or an accompanist. And I'd be like, I can do it, you know, and I'm like 11. They're like, "Uh uh-huh, you know, (laughs) and I'm like, no, if I've heard it, I can play it. And so it's just playing by ear. Yeah. Um, and still just one of the best. I'm so thankful for that skill because when you're a worship leader, which I don't really, I guess I wouldn't consider myself that right now, just because I don't really do that anywhere. But, um, the times when I am doing that, like being able to follow someone's lead and play in any key and play something you've heard once, it's really helpful. So (laughs) I was just born with that. And then I probably knew I was a good songwriter again, pretty immediately. I, and I've, I I used to hesitate to say that kind of thing, but now I'm like, well, it's just the truth. Like I love it. Yeah. I just knew that I had a gift. I didn't think that I would make a career out of it. Uh-huh. But I but I knew that I was gifted pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. What was the first song? Like how old were you when you wrote your first song? Well, I was 16 when I tried writing. I tried writing when I was 16 and I wrote like a chorus one time and I played it for someone and her reaction kind of freaked me out. So I didn't <laughs> What do you mean? Why how did she react? Well, because I wrote a song about my waiting for my future husband, of course. And <laughs> you're 16. What else? The lyrics were so, I mean, like they were so uh, patriarchal. And oh, wow. Like she just was like, what is this? Is this what you think? Like about men and women. And I was like, she was not from the church, not from no. And so I think I just was like, this is weird. I don't know. And so I didn't really write after that. And then I was 19 when I started writing again. And I don't remember what the first thing was. I do remember that I had the urge to do it. And then mm. I, I did um, a 30 day challenge where I wrote one song every day, top to bottom, even if I thought it was terrible. Wow. And that was what got me off to the races. You start writing songs at 19. You've been playing piano uh, since the age of two. But you, at some point, you make this journey into making music a career. What was that journey like? I feel like my answer is going to make some people really mad. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have to work very hard for this. I worked hard as a musician for years in West Palm Beach playing Um, I was living in West Palm Beach, Florida from 2001 till 2008. Mm. And I was playing everywhere I could. I mean, churches and restaurants and funerals and weddings and Christmas parties and just anything and everything I could kind of do. I did it. So I did work hard in that way. Are you playing your own songs at that point? Both covers and my own songs, depending on the thing. So like I would, you know, I would work at the restaurant where I worked and then one night, you know, I'd be at a Christmas party playing jazz standards and Christmas songs. And then I would also play at church on a Wednesday night and do worship songs and some of my own stuff. And then like, it just kind of was a mix. Yeah. But I was playing four to five times a week 
by the end uh-huh. when I left. So I did work hard in that way. But once, so basically what ended up happening was um, a friend called from Nashville where he had just moved. He had moved from West Palm Beach and he was in this band and they had just signed a record deal. Okay. And he was like, hey, my girlfriend, now his wife, my girlfriend's roommate just moved out. She needs someone else. And I don't know why, but I just thought, you know, I wonder if Audrey's ever thought about moving up here. Great town for music. Like, have you ever thought about it? And I was like, I have never thought about it. And then within three days, I had decided to leave. (laughs) So I um, packed up and left. You said that you hadn't considered it. Mm -hmm. Was it moving to Nashville or was it pursuing music as a full-time career? Moving to Nashville. I had certainly had some thoughts by that point about music as a career, but I, as much as I have always known that I'm good at what I do, I have a lot of self-limiting thoughts and behaviors about what I'm capable of achieving with it. And I definitely am better about that now, but not all the way. I mean, I still struggle with that a lot. And so I think I just never thought about it seriously as a career until he asked me to move to town. Okay. And then when I moved there, it was like right before I left town, I had a goodbye show. Well, this was before Kickstarter actually existed, which is just wild (laughs) to think about. But I was like, I'm moving to Nashville and I want to make an album, you know, and so I'm putting this guitar case out on the edge of the stage and like 400 people came and I left that night with like $3,000. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And they all, it was so sweet too. Like whoever, I can't remember whose idea this was, but somebody from there was like, handed everybody a slip of paper and they all wrote me like a wish for my time in Nashville. It was seriously so sweet. And I left feeling very buoyed by that for sure. And within a few days, a few other people had reached out and said like, I want to loan you, you know, some more. And so I ended up moving to Nashville with like $7,000. I mean, I didn't have any money before that. So I was like, whoa, you know, but I spent it on this five song EP I made that I made with a couple of producers. So I did that in February. I moved there in January. I recorded it in February. And in March, I got a phone call from Sparrow Records, which is like <laughs> a Christian label under what's now Capital, but at the time was EMI. Wow. So a big a major label, you know, their president of uh, the VP of A&R called me on the phone and was like, hey, I got your CD from so-and-so. I really like it. I want to meet with you. And I was like, what? Like, I just hadn't even... <laughs> thought about what I would do next, you know, right. I was like, I, and that's why you say that people would be mad at you because yeah. it, it happened so quick. Yeah. Cause I just like moved to town and then <laughs> got connected. It didn't take very long and I didn't try anything. I just was working at a nanny job and, but you know, it's interesting. So then I showcased for them that year, a couple months later, which is where they kind of rent out a small venue or a room and you like play some songs and tell your story. And they, it's just like a few executives and yeah. you, it's kind of unnerving. It's actually a very unnerving experience because yeah. you're, just, you're kind of in front of like eight people and you're having to pretend like you're doing your thing. It, it's, <sighs> but so I did that. I showcased for them and he said to me, like, I love what you're doing, but you're not ready. And you need to go out on the road for like a year or two before you really give this a go. And I was like, okay, great. And I I did. I got, um, and again, people might be mad about this, but I (laughs) I was working at my job and I got a phone call from my friend, Michael, who was the same guy who called me to ask if I would move to to Nashville. Oh, same guy. Uh And he, yeah, Mike has been a big, big part of my story and encouraging Mm -hmm. me. And I say, I always say I would never be where I am 
am without the people who suck their necks out for me. I mean, it's just the truth. Yeah. Cause I was like, I don't know what to do. You know, I don't know how to self promote. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so yeah. he had gone to GMA week, which doesn't really exist anymore, I think, but uh-huh. it was the week before the dev award. They had this like whole strip of events and slew of gatherings and shows and ceremonies and different things, sort of like the Grammys, but you know, the Christian Grammys, I guess. Right. And he had met Matt Marr, who is a, a worship leader, writer. People might know his work more than they know him, but okay. he wrote the song, Your Grace is Enough. Oh, yeah. But his biggest song is Lord, I Need You, which most people will probably know if they go to church yeah. anywhere in America anyway. He was there at GMA Week 2, and he was traveling full-time, doing his thing, touring. And Michael's like, you got to meet this guy because he's Catholic, you're Catholic, you're both writers. And so we had coffee, and Matt's a very spiritual guy. Like, he's very mm-hmm. intuitive, too. And so he listened to my EP, and he agreed to have coffee with me while he was in town. And then we had coffee, and we had never worked together or gotten in a room with a piano together or anything. Uh-huh. And he said, I'd like to fly you out and have you do a few shows with me in a few weeks. <laughs> and I said, okay. And so I did. And we were like, this is a, it was an amazing fit. And so for the mm. next two and a half years or so, I was full-time on the road with him as a background singer and like a, a opening artist sometimes when there was room yeah. for that. So that was the road experience I needed. And then I signed a record deal in 2009, late 2009 with Sparrow Records. And okay, that was how I got going in the industry section of what I do. And it was a bunch of people just taking a chance on me because I did not know what I was doing, like from a business perspective at all. Yeah. I'm grateful for all of that. When you begin your songwriting, I mean, you could write about anything. You could be a Christian who writes mm-hmm. just regular songs, but you sort of take this spirituality and your faith and put it into your songs. How did you go about making that decision? Mm, I can't say it was super intentional, if I'm honest. I didn't okay. I didn't know what else to write about really at the time because I didn't yeah. I didn't date. <laughs> I didn't have boyfriends. <laughs> I didn't I didn't live life outside of that framework very much. And so like yeah. it really was all that was on my mind most of the time. Uh-huh. At the time, there was nothing I could think of to, that was important to write about other than that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Nowadays is I still do write from that perspective of spirituality and faith, but I also write about a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had to find other outlets for those songs most of the time because they just don't fit into the sort of canon I've assembled. But uh-huh. um, I like to write about everything now because I like to express, you know, the full breadth of what it means to be a human in my body and my lived experience. But like at the time, I just don't think I thought anything was important. Like I was just like, well, it wouldn't be important to write about these other things. And so yeah, I didn't really consider yeah. writing about other things. And so when you release your first album, uh-huh. how was it received? It's received very well, isn't it? My first one? Yeah. It did way better than I was expecting it to do. You're just angering everybody right now. I know. I <laughs> Well, imagine <laughs> one day I walk into the Apple store to get my phone repaired and I look on the computer and I'm like, oh, my album is on here. (laughs) And then I look on every other computer in the store and my album is on every computer in the store. And then I call my manager and I'm like, what? And she's like, oh yeah, I was going to tell you this at our meeting, but your song, your single is on every Apple computer in every Apple store in the entire country. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay, (laughs) what? You know? Oh my gosh. It was just like, 
It was wild. Was that the moment for you where it was like, <laughs> I've made it? I think that definitely felt like it. I was like, yeah. this is serious. Like I'm doing business in the big leagues at this point, at least in Christian yeah. music. And that was unusual for a Christian artist to land that kind of opportunity. Sure. Um, so I got some really unique, weird opportunities like that, that were really kind of a surprise because yeah. I... I wouldn't have expected that, but it, yeah, you know, it won, I think the iTunes like breakthrough album of the year or something. And then it was a good, yeah, it was a good little run I had there. I didn't, I ended up leaving Sparrow Records about would have been 20 or late 2012 Okay, um, was when we officially made the decision that they weren't going to renew my next option, which is like they had the option to renew every year every album cycle uh -huh. um, after the first two. And they decided not to renew the next one, okay. which is a whole story. <laughs> um, <laughs> I basically annoyed them into dropping me on purpose. <laughs> do they know that? I think they probably do at this <laughs> point, but at the time they just, I was making it difficult and I did that on purpose and then they ended up. Because you wanted out. I didn't want to be there anymore because yeah. I was really early on realized that it was going to be creatively frustrating and it was where yeah. I was definitely right. Um, because they are a big business with a big parent company with a big bottom line. Yeah. And I just, every creative decision came down to that at the end of the day. And I knew that that was not how I wanted to do business. Was it like they were pushing you mainstream or something? No, no, no. I mean, that probably would have been fine, but it was more that, you know, every time we have a video concept or every time we have a photo shoot concept or every time we have a record cover, we want to decide on what ultimately made the decision was not, is this the best or is this the nicest or the most creative or interesting? It was, yeah. does this meet our standards of what sells albums? Mm -hmm. And I get that, but I think I knew really quickly that that isn't how I operate right. and couldn't be how I operated long-term or I would just burn out. And so yeah. because of the way those deals are structured, I couldn't leave or I would be in a precarious legal and financial position. Yeah. So I had to be dropped. <sighs> so I bugged them to the point where they were like, forget this. <laughs> what would you do? How would you be, how would you bug them? Um, well, one time I insisted on showing up for every Friday marketing meeting, which artists are not invited to. <laughs> um, I just started showing up and coming and I... <laughs> There was a reason for that. It wasn't just to annoy them. I was frustrated because they were spending money indiscriminately. I have to recoup those funds that are spent huh. through my album sales before I get paid anything on royalties on my own stuff, you know? Wow. So like I had started to really be cognizant of that and start examining our budgets and like what we were spending money on. And I was like, yeah. why are we spending this money? You know? And they were just like not having it. Right. Like, they did not want me asking that and they did not want me looking at that. And it's, it's a very old school model. You know, they yeah. just were like, we do what we do and you just do what you do. And that's how this works. And I was uh -huh. like, well, I don't want to work like that. I want to know what we're spending and why we're spending it. And I want to approve that stuff. Yeah. They're like, well, that's not how we do things here. You know, and I'm like, but it's my back this is on. Like, yeah. I have to recoup this money. So why shouldn't I be allowed to speak into what we're spending? Uh -huh. And they just did not think that way. And I knew that that was not how they work. And so eventually, as I just kind of became more and more vocal about that kind of thing, they were like, this isn't a fit, Yeah, you know, which is true. It wasn't. So yeah. I don't have any bitterness towards them. I just, it wasn't going to be a long-term fit mm -hmm. creatively. 
Um, the only real sadness I had about leaving was Brad, who was the guy who originally signed me uh-huh. because I really loved working with him and we've maintained a friendship. So you went out on your own? I did. I did. I launched a Kickstarter the day after my deal ran out. A real Kickstarter. This a time. real Kickstarter. And I raised $40,000 in 48 hours. <laughs> oh my goodness. And then it was Audrey. At the end of the month, it was at 80,000. And that was the seed money I basically used to record an album, promote it and start my business. And so I have been very smiled upon, you know, it's like, yeah. I'm conscious of the fact that there are people out there and I, I work hard. I mean, I work really of hard, course. but there was a lot that came by whatever you want to call it, destiny, grace, fortune, God's favor. I don't know. But it wouldn't have happened without other people being yeah. such amazing supporters and believers in what I do. And there's so much I can't take credit for, you know? So it's also a recognition of talent. I get why you wouldn't say that, but I'm just saying it. Yeah, I guess it is. And people liked what I was doing, you know? So they wanted yeah. to help me and like be part of what I think they felt. What I felt I sensed from people was that they were excited for me and they wanted to be part of helping me do things a different way. And so having gone out on your own, do you feel like your artistry and creativity was able to evolve? Yes. Um, I felt, I mean, the first thing I did was produce my own record because I had grown a lot in my abilities as a producer. And part of the creative difficulty of where I was at the label is that I really felt like they weren't giving me the kind of room that I could occupy as an artist in the sense that I I knew I could produce my own work. Uh I knew that I could be more at the helm than I was allowed to be. You know, at the time, one of the suits at the label (laughs) in the middle of all of that called me up to his office to have this big meeting. And Uh I had been expressing just that like, I felt like I wanted arrangement credit and I wanted to produce and I wanted to be in charge more. I knew I was capable of it. And they were like, that's cute, you know? And 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 I just thought that's sexist. And then he totally, I mean, one could say, oh, that's such an assumption. But then this man calls me to his office and says, I need you to understand that I have dropped many women for being far less opinionated than you are. Huh. <laughs> I was like, Oh my gosh. Oh, it is sexist. Then. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Noted, you know, and I kind of, I was like, thank you for telling me the actual truth though. Mm. I, I suspected that this was happening. Thank you for just saying it out loud. You know, it was helpful. I figured yeah. out what was happening and I was like, I'm not here for this. So I produced my own album called Fortunate Fall. That was in 2013, came out in August of that year, the day after I found out I was pregnant with my son, Will. Oh, wow. And I was off to the races again, but just in a new yeah. sector, you know? I mean, you you grow to sort of this fame as a Christian music artist. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, like you're a professional Christian. Yeah. <laughs> what What's that like? <laughs> um... It was uh, really hard. Mm. I don't want to complain. I've had a very yeah, sure. blessed and privileged life in a lot of ways, but I will say that being a public person to begin with is difficult. Sure. And then to have religion intersected with that as I like have been evolving yeah. has been a wearying thing. But I have figured out ways to navigate that and Part of that is I'm I'm on, I'm on Twitter a lot less. I can tell you, <laughs> I need a break sometimes from sure. remembering how many people might be peering in. You know, yeah, um, because that's not really how I think we're built to live. 
And so fame is just a weird thing to begin with. And then when you intersect it with religion, I think there are some like really weird little areas that kind of crop up. I mean, it also must have been difficult because as you'd mentioned before, you're going through this faith journey of of exploring hell and mm-hmm. and all this stuff and you know all the while still being out there as this paragon of Christian Yeah, that was fun. Um people were and have been mostly gracious toward me, but there are always is a vocal minority mm. kind of expressing disappointment yeah. and being like, I'm leaving, you know, yeah. I am un- unfollow, unlike, you know, and <sighs> yeah. I just kind of years ago was like, okay, I just decide that that doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Like if I, if I let it matter to me or I let it get to me, it will. And it's not what I'm here to do. I'm not mm. on this earth to please everybody. And, you know, that's going to bug some people. Yeah. And it's okay. Like, I hope that my irritation of them is a helpful part of their life. Like, I don't, yeah. they don't need to be anywhere different than where they are for me. Like, I don't care. You know, I mean, I, of course I care, but you know what I'm saying? Like, they are yeah. who they are. They are where they are. And I am okay with that. Yeah. And I can't ask the same of them because they're not, I don't control them. <laughs> So I just kind of left that behind as a metric for me of uh-huh. my success as a person. And so it's not so hard for me, really. I don't lose sleep over that anymore. Yeah. I, but I definitely seem to regularly bother a lot of people. And that's just, <laughs> I'm not trying to, that's not why I do anything. I'm not like a shock jock. It's not, <laughs> not why I say things that I say or do things yeah. I do. It just happens to have that side effect. I think it's interesting because of the expression that you do in your music and the way that you value your your spirituality and your spiritual journey, Mm -hmm. I imagine that you are giving so many people license to journey along their own spiritual journey in some ways in a freedom that you didn't have growing up. Mm -hmm. I hope that's true. I mean, I really desire that, yeah, that my authenticity online and in public would give permission to people to explore what they need to explore. I had people whose authenticity did that for me. Yeah. And I hope that that's uh, an effect of my presence in the world. And I think it is like maybe not the flashiest thing but I think it's important and worth it for me. Yeah. So 2020 has locked us down in quarantines. Mm -hmm. And for musicians, this must have been a very difficult time Mm -hmm. on on scale, right? But this is, you know, someone who makes their livelihood on touring and and performing. um, This must have been a very difficult time for you and for your industry. Mm -hmm. Um, How are you managing? I don't know. I mean, it fluctuates, you know, I have been fortunate in that I have not, I have figured out ways to make it work uh-huh. financially, but it's like touch and go at all times, you know, wow. like it is for most of us. Yeah. I did have to cancel a tour and it kind of threw a wrench into my album release that I was planning as well. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm hanging in there, but I'm certainly trying to figure out what's next right now? Like, do I continue to do this the way that I've done it? Do I explore getting a job Mm. or going back to school or, you know, I don't know. I'm open to anything. I'm kind of just feeling out like what spirit is leading me to do. Cause I, I do think there's a shift coming. And in a way I, I already knew there was, but it's like quarantine and COVID kicked my butt to like figure it out now versus maybe the two years from now that I was thinking. Um, 
about. And so, yeah, in certain ways, I think I'm feeling pretty unmoored, but it's not entirely unwelcome in that sense. Like I'm kind of ready for something different. And I I think music is always going to be a huge part of what I do. So that's not going to change, but but I'm ready for something new. And I, I will take the silver lining or at least choose to see it as a silver lining uh, amongst all hard, hard, weird stuff about this time that I am being kind of forced into reimagining things. Cause I think I needed that. So now I'm doing it, but I don't know what it is. I haven't figured it out. (laughs) Yeah. I think one thing that's consistent in your journey is that, you know, when you ask for help, people show up because they believe in you and the, the message that you have to share through your music. Very true. I'm very grateful for that. I love the honesty of Audrey sharing her story the times where things were relatively smooth and easy, and the times where things were really, really hard, and holding all of those things in tension and still finding her voice in these melodic prayers that inspire and challenge at the same time. You can find Audrey on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Spotify, and I will put all those links in the show notes. But I would encourage all of you to stream her new album, Eden, as soon as you're done with this episode. Thank you for listening to The Pursuit. If you want to help out the show, please subscribe and leave a rating. It's one of the best ways for the podcast to reach new ears. Now, as we go, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. Um, I didn't date any of those boys. I just wrote about them in my journal with just embarrassing, (laughs) embarrassing obsession levels. 